And welcome back to Pushing the A, here with Chapter 28, Progressivism and the Republican Roosevelt. We got a whole chapter to look at tonight. This one's a little more domestic, a little more political, a little more fun, a little more exciting. It's a Teddy Roosevelt chapter. It's going to be fun. That chat swiped. Do not disturb notification. I'm just kidding. I'm not Scott Rosowski. Hashtag boycott HQ or something. We ready to go? All right, let's do it. So, there are 76 million Americans by the year 1900. Most of them are foreign born. There are 13 million more by 1914. Reform is on the way, folks. In 1902, publications like McClure's and Cosmo and Collier's and everybody's are exposing evil in the world uh, with research from these young muckraking reporters. Teddy Roosevelt loves it. Circulation's on the rise. Uh, Lincoln Steffens writes this book called The Shame of Cities, where he sort of exposes these political machines. Ida M. Tardell writes an expose on Standard Oil. Others go after things like life insurance and the beef trusts. Um, Roosevelt's really impressed. Phillips, who wrote a thing uh, on called The Treason of the Senate, which basically is about how the Senate is an old man millionaire's club um, and how they're representing businesses and not people. Thomas Lawson reveals how the stock market really works. Phillips' first name is Graham, by the way, in case you wanted to know. Uh, Phillips then gets shot by someone who he had maligned. Other things that come up is this term, white slaves, which is referring to women basically trapped in the sex trade, um, calling things, calling people things like slumlords and calling out industrial accidents and calling out the fact that 90% of 9 million blacks are illiterate uh, in this thing called following the color line. Child labor is exposed in something called the bitter cry of children. Alcoholic medicine and sellers who are basically soliciting, or not soliciting, but advising that people use drugs that are addictive as medicine gets exposed and they're selling it really well via these advertisements no longer. Uh, Harvey Wiley, who is a chemist in the Department of Agriculture, proves a lot of these things. So yeah, there's this nice little journalistic culture that is being raised in America that we'll see throughout time and time again in sort of the future. Best example I can think of is the Boston Globe 2001 exposing the Catholic Church. Um, this is actually an effect, and the reason it seems out of place is because I misplaced my cards. But basically at the beginning of the 1900s, labor and the greenbacks and the populace of 1890 are all sort of banding together to start this progressive movement. Um, they say the hands-off approach of the past is broken, that laissez-faire economics suck, and that they need to get involved. The government needs to get involved. Also, all these new Americans have made the situation a lot more, a lot more extreme than it used to be. There are a lot of people in these cities. Um, before, both the poli the political people and writers have been attacking the trusts 
uh, and the new rich. So there are more books that come out um, called Wealth Against the Common something. I don't know. can't read the notes. Wealth Against the Common Wealth. I wrote Wealth Against the Common Against, which makes no sense. Uh, the Theory of the Leisure Class, talking about how business is wasteful and industry is wasteful and people on the bottom need social leadership. Um, Reese, who writes for the New York Sun, writes something called How the Other, Other Half Lives, which is about the slums. Uh, Dreiser writes the book called The, the Financier, The Titan. The Titan... Um, socialists start to show up at elections preaching the social gospel, which is basically progressive ideas based on Christian teaching. Um, this idea of improving people's housing is really coming up. Um, these economists from academia are coming into the mainstream. And this idea that we need to sort of change the way that government operates fundamentally is really starting to gain precedence. Um, and people are sort of looking towards Europe for these reforms and feminists are sort of preaching this idea that we need to change the way government operates. So the political coalition that makes up the progressives is really all over the place. So you have people like Teddy Roosevelt who are fighters and want to be involved in world events and Jane Addams who is a pacifist and immigrant Americanizers and people from labor and businessmen, they all join together in this coalition with the common goals of they want to end monopoly, they want to improve the condition of the common man and they want to regain power from the interests. So a few ways they go about doing this are primaries to sort of cut off bosses from winning nominations and elections over and over. Um, an initiative, which is when voters propose legislations, legislation, that's a plural of legislation, themselves, and they can vote on it, and other laws that are really corrupt in referendums, they can recall bad apples to unelect them. States limit campaign spending and campaign gifts. This idea of the secret Australian ballot is implemented to sort of remove the pressure of people knowing who people are voting for. A really big goal is to have senators be elected directly instead of by state legislatures because it is this old man's millionaire club. Um, so there are primaries implemented state by state and the state legislatures listen to these primaries, um, but you really need an amendment to do it and that very much struggles in the Senate because they don't want to change it. It eventually gets done with the 17th Amendment. City people are also angry about political machines. There is a lot of filth in where they live. There are a lot of prostitutes. There are juvenile delinquents. There are slumlords. The quality of life is horrible. Galveston, Texas sets this interesting example with a commission to basically manage urban affairs. Other cities employ city managers um, where they keep politics out of city administration and they really just make it this is how cities run. It's bureaucratic um, and efficient, not necessarily democratic. Wisconsin really likes leading the charge here on making cities better. Rob LaFollette governs. He starts in 1901. He comes up with all these progressive ideas like like wrestling control from the corporations and giving to the people and making utilities public, which is a question. He establishes a public university, the University of Wisconsin, which is well regarded to this day. California and Oregon um, 
install public utility commissions to regulate railroads. Hiram Johnson breaks up the Southern Pacific Railroad Company. He's the governor of California. Uh, New York does similar things with Charles E. Hughes. Another thing that's happening in Washington, California, Oregon, women's suffrage is on the rise using the slogan, tell me if you have heard this before, taxation without representation. should have heard it on a license plate and in the revolution of 1776. This card says, am I a man or am I a wolf? So, uh, vine reference. Women are very important to the progressive movement. Um, these things called settlement houses are established, which basically show middle-class women the life of the poor in cities. Uh, and it shows them how corrupt things are in conditions, and they teach them skills to fight back against this. Women's clubs stop talking about literature, start talking about current events. And it gets to this point where moral issues like tuberculosis, child labor, food, pensions for mothers in the industrial world are seen as an extension of the home and therefore issues of the women. So women begin to lobby with the National Consumers League, the Women Trade Union, the Women's Trade Union League, the Federal Children's Bureau, the women, the federal bureaus, including the Children's Bureau, the Women's Bureau, and the Department of Labor. Factories get a lot of attention. Florence Kelly is Illinois' first chief factory inspector, and she takes over the National Consumers League, where she safeguards those who are vulnerable in the workplace. Alcohol also gets its day in the sun. In the Supreme Court case Mueller versus Oregon in 1908, uh, Brandeis, who is a attorney at the time, convinces the Supreme Court to protect women workers from bad stuff that happens in the factory, which is considered sexist now, but was a revolution then. Um, and that's how the welfare state got built on protecting women and children, and it eventually applied to everyone. Um, there were some setbacks. So Lochner versus New York in 1905 was a big setback because it invalidated the 10-hour workday for bakers. Um, eventually, reformers in the judiciary hold it up and began to agree with the way that the new politics of the era are leading towards. There's this huge fire in 1910 or 1911-ish um, at the Triangle Clothing Waistband Something Factory that leads to a huge women's protest. Um, New York decides to regulate a whole lot more. Workers' compensation comes. And this idea that employers are responsible to society and therefore their workers is on the rise. Um, the Women's Christians Temperance Union, in response to saloons and alcohol leading to a lot of prostitution and in 1900 in San Francisco, New York, there was a saloon for every 200 people. So the Women's Christians Temperance Union comes up as a place that's really saying the alcohol problem in America has gotten out of hand. The anti-saloon leagues of the country start to pop up and this eventually leads to dry counties and dry states. And eventually, through the 18th Amendment, a dry country, the cities are the last holdouts. The cities like their alcohol. People like German immigrants like to relax at the end of the day with the stein of their favorite beer, to quote the book. This next card is deal with a square around it. And you know it's a square because there are four right angles, which is just a little geometry fact for you all. Um, Teddy Roosevelt is very, very pro-public interest, and he takes up reform with a square deal. So it's all about controlling corporations and protecting the consumer, a little conscription in there. Um, in Pennsylvania, 140,000 exploited workers strike 
and they're in the coal industry, they demand better pay, better hours. The owners refuse. So coal production goes way down. Infrastructure's hurt. So the coal company sends representatives to the White House. Um, and they anger Teddy Roosevelt, who basically threatens to seize the mines and run it with federal troops if they don't acquiesce to the workers' demands. So they basically say, okay, we'll raise your pay by 10%. We'll recognize your union. We'll make your work day nine hours. Um, Roosevelt then goes and says to Congress, hey, for this exact reason, we need a labor and a commerce department. So one is both of them are instilled in 1903, as well as the Bureau of Corporations, which really paves the way for trust busting. The ICC, which is the Interstate Commerce Commission, which was sort of for this sort of thing was trash um, because railroads could really just appeal to the courts. So finally, um, Congress goes and passes some real legislation that gives the ICC some teeth with the Elkins Act that is anti-rebate, and if anyone uses a rebate, then you get fined. The Hepburn Act of 1906 basically says there can be no free passes on the railroad. This section is about railroads, by the way. Um, and the ICC is allowed to go after more types of companies and to set a maximum rate. Um, so Teddy Roosevelt has all these new tools at his disposal, and he decides to go out and go trust busting. Um, there are good ones. There are good trusts, um, at least in his opinion. So he only goes after the bad ones. So, for instance, the Northern Security Company in 1902, uh, J.P. Morgan wants a railroad monopoly in the Northwest. The Supreme Court sides with Teddy Roosevelt. They dissolve the company. Wall Street is shooketh. Um, Forty monopolies are busted under Teddy, 40-ish. Um, in 1905, the Supreme Court says the Beef Trust is illegal, sugar, other things are hurt too. Um, and this really reps, reps, inflates the reputation, the rep of Teddy Roosevelt, uh, because it was a symbolic fight. He was more in favor of regulating instead of breaking up these trusts. He could have done a lot more. He, he actually makes the trusts tamer and a little less powerful, but he leaves them a lot better off because they're able to survive the next few decades. He even actually allows the U.S. Steel Corporation to monopolize the steel market, which is not necessarily someone who's a legendary trust buster, something they would do per se. Um, in 1906, Teddy Roosevelt says, you know what, it's time to think about food safety because we have these meat exports that we're sending out and they're all disgusting as well as all of our canned products that we're sending out. Let's change that. People stop eating meat once they figure this out. Teddy Roosevelt appoints a commission who find rats and splinters in meats and canned goods. So the Meat Inspection Act of 1906, um, interstate meat is now inspected and the Pure Food and Drug Act, which stops mislabeling of food, is also stopped. This next section is called Earth Control, which, let me tell you, is a lovely pun. In the 1880s, Americans really thought their resources were pretty infinite. So they pollute and they loot and destroy, and they don't really think about the effects until the effects start. So in 1877, the first feeble attempt at helping the environment begins, which is the Desert Land Act of 1877, and it's an effort to irrigate the desert. Very honorable. In 91, there's the Forest Reserve Act, which basically says the president has the power to turn forests into national parks and 46 million are reserved. Uh, the Kerry Act of 1894 basically 
says the state should give federal or the federal government should give federal land to the state so they can irrigate it. When Teddy Roosevelt is inaugurated, he really puts a whole new level onto this sphere of government. The Newlands Act of 1902 is one thing he goes for. Um, basically, he takes money from public land sales in the West and he uses it for irrigation. And then that um, some of the other money is used for projects. So settlers are paying for dams like the Roosevelt dams. There are a lot of dams in that time. Um, and there's also this general feeling of, hey, let's save the forest. Because in 1900, only a quarter of the initial timber that was initially in the country remained. Most of what was initially from Maine to Michigan was gone. So Teddy Roosevelt basically takes 125 million acres of forest, some parts of the country with coal and water in them, and he sets them aside. He doesn't even have Christmas trees in the White House, um, which is honorable. Talking more earth control. Um, Teddy Roosevelt's legacy of conservation is really arguably his most lasting legacy, and the national mood at the time really supported him because people were sort of worried about the frontier and this idea of, hey, let's, let's go out and enjoy the wilderness is a nice one to have. Um, people are also like, let's stop all living in the city. It really sucks, which is true. Cities do kind of suck. They're also great. Other things that happen, books like The Call of the Wild, organizations like the Boys, the Boy Scouts and Bird Societies and the Sierra Club are all popping up. Then something interesting happens where San Francisco builds a dam in the Hetch Hetchy, Hetch Hetchy Valley in Yosemite, and the country basically finds out that Teddy Roosevelt wants to use this land he has preserved. He wants it to be multi-use, so he wants their resources, he wants to use it for recreation, he wants sustained logging and cattle grazing. Um, and so eventually people figure out that the Forest Service and the Bureau of, Rec of Reclamation can actually work with people and companies to make the most of this land, not just use it for conservation, which is, I guess, interesting. Um, 1904, Teddy Roosevelt wins re-election, came up with the term teddy bear in that time, which is interesting. Um, Republican bosses are very angry at him because he's doing all this regulating and taxing and protecting all these workers. And so Teddy Roosevelt's like, you know what? I won't go for a third term. I won't do it. And in 1907, Wall Street goes into this massive panic and... Suddenly, people start making runs on banks and killing themselves, and speculators are indicted. And so Teddy Roosevelt's like, hey, Wall Street, stop making up this panic to stop our trust busting. And then Teddy Roosevelt's like, wait, hold on. We have this currency shortage from this panic. We have all these monetary reforms that we need to make, but we've never really had a mandate to. Now we do. And so then Congress goes about authorizing national banks to issue emergency currency in the Aldrich Verland something act. Um, and that's really the forerunner of the Federal Reserve Act, which is really, really important. Teddy Roosevelt has said he's not going to do a third term, um, and he goes out looking for a successor. He finds it in William Taft, um, and he pushes him through the nomination for the Republicans. The Democrats nominate William Jennings Bryan for the third time. He runs on a campaign of complaining. It's really a competition of who can be more progressive. Taft wins that competition by 1.2 million votes and by about 150 electoral votes. The socialists get 420,000 votes for Eugene Debs, the leader of their party. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt then goes on a nice vacation to Africa to go lion hunt. His enemies are like, ha ha ha, he's going to die. And then he does not. Um, 
which will come back to bite the entire country later on, as it turns out. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was not as antitrust as he's made out to be. He was a bigger friend to business and capitalism. He was really a cleanser of capitalism. He's also like a little kid in the Oval Office. Um, someone said, it's important that you remember the president is about six years old. He was always looking for a middle ground that protected capitalists and land. Um, he had three lasting legacies. One is he enlarged the power of the Oval Office vastly, and he showed everyone that you could use publicity as a tool in politics. Two, he shaped the progressives permanently. Um, and three, he sort of showed the world the United States is now a world power. We now have a responsibility to run the world and to use it fairly and to be solid leaders. Um, so in comes William Howard Taft, which means that we have a new president. Very exciting. Um, he can't lead the Republican Party by personality like Teddy Roosevelt did. He's passive with Congress, bad with public opinion. He's very happy with the status quo. He doesn't put anyone who's very radical in his cabinet. So the companies, or the companies, the country's uh, love affair with Taft is rather short-lived. One thing he does come up with is something called dollar diplomacy, which is basically this idea is that let's invest in places that are going to help our political interests. Um, so he says to Wall Street, hey, you should send money to places that are of strategic interest to us, so like the Far East and Panama. Um, he tries to invest in the Manchurian railroads and then tries to give them over to China, which the Russians and the Japanese control. Uh, the Russians and the Japanese... Um, say no to that, but this idea of dollar diplomacy does put the United States ahead of rivals in their investments, and it strengthens their defense and their investments, um, proving that money does do better than a big stick in some instances. Uh, Taft then goes and puts money, because he can't put it in Manchuria, he puts it in Haiti and Honduras to keep others out on the premise of the Monroe Doctrine. Um... He sends forces to Cuba and Honduras and the Dominican Republic um, when they are having issues to try and restore order and to protect their economic interests. He also sends Marines to Nicaragua, which stick around for a solid 13 years. So Taft is actually a much bigger trust buster than Roosevelt. He attacks 90 in four years versus Roosevelt, attacking 44 in about seven and a half years. Um, in 1911, he goes after... Um, U.S. Steel, which pisses off uh, Roosevelt. He also gets in the Supreme Court to dissolve Standard Oil via the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is a good thing for him. However, it does set a precedent on which trusts he can bust and which he cannot. So heading into the election, uh, progressive Republicans want a lower tariff. Congress and Taft, they don't get it done. They pass the Payne Aldrich bill, which I think gets it done. It does not get it done. Um, the con he's a conservationist. Taft is a conservationist, but his Secretary of Interior, Ballinger, opens lands in Wyoming to corporate development. So between all of this, Republicans, um, sort of the reformist Republicans, and Teddy Roosevelt's pro-force friend, Pinchot, they're all up in arms and they protest him, and Taft sort of just blows the ball off. So Everyone gets ready to fight Taft, um, and Taft is moving towards the old guard pretty rapidly. So in 1910, Teddy Roosevelt actually returns to New York and then goes to Kansas 
and gives a speech and basically saying the government has to use its power to fix its problems, new nationalism. Um, this splits the Republicans pretty evenly straight down the middle. They lose big in the midterms, 228 Democratic seats, and Wisconsin even elects a socialist, which is um, something that doesn't have often. So the Republicans are pissed at Taft. In 1911, the National Progressive Republican League is formed with La Follette, the governor of Wisconsin, at the front. And Teddy Roosevelt's like, you know what? No, I want in. I said no consecutive third term. This is not a backseize. I did not have a consecutive third term. I can still run for a third term. La Follette is pushed to the side, uh, and they run Roosevelt as their sort of nominee. So he faces off against Taft at the Republican National Convention in Chicago. Roosevelt asks for the delegates that have been appointed to Taft to be unseated. Taft supporters hold their ground, hold the convention, and they nominate Taft. Teddy Roosevelt, instead of going home and licking his wounds, 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 um, goes home and starts his own party, the Bull Moose Party, who James Adams nominates him for on this new nationalism, which is to improve economic and social life, the government should increase its power. Uh, the Democrats are pumped because the Republicans are split, which means they've got a great chance. So they go and nominate Woodrow Wilson, who uh, was in New Jersey, made the state very liberal. Um, and he runs on this idea of the new freedom program, which is giving power back to the people. It's a still a progressive program. So these two candidates are very similar on having an active government. The question is where the government should be active. So Roosevelt says, let's have the government active in that they consolidate the trusts, they enact women's suffrage, they start a minimum wage, we get healthcare for assistance. Wilson says, let's have a small business sort of oriented government. We want people to be encouraged to be entrepreneurs we want things to be unregulated because everything will be unmonopolized. Um, the Democrats are saying competition's good, and if we have good competition, we don't need welfare, uh, so let's get rid of the trust, and then everyone can just do what they want. Um, the election's a real clear choice between two distinct policies and platforms. Um, Woodrow Wilson pulls it out with 435 electoral votes and 2 million, Teddy Roosevelt comes in second, Taft comes in third. He goes on to work at Yale and be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The Socialist Party gets uh, more than one million votes, which is impressive, again, because socialists historically are not popular in America. So, that is chapter 28. Um, I'll be back with more tomorrow if you're listening to this now, directly after I publish it on a Saturday night, which is... um. Man, if, if me recording this is sad on a Saturday night, then um, you listening to this on a Saturday night is pretty sad. But yeah, I'll be back with more Pushing the A, chapters 29 and 30 tomorrow. Chapter review, and by chapter I mean period review, on Monday for the test on Tuesday. It has been a pleasure as always. And until next time, it is a departure here on Pushing the A.
Pushing the A is brought to you by Bounce for when you need something dry to go with your gushy Tide Pod. Bounce dryer sheets. They bounce. Compass Coffee for when you need to know where to go and drink your coffee. Compass Coffee. It'll put you in the northern mood. Salt Shaker when you need to spread a little salt on someone's life. This is pushing the A.